you don't waste anything because of how, how important it is. But especially with pork, if you know what you're doing with it, you can make enough revenue and you can make enough portions out of it to go, okay, it's got so many different uses and you can actually get it back. When you got people like Judy Crow and, and some other amazing um, growers, you go, well, how lucky are we to have this product? This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. As a kid, Ian Curley saw a career in hospitality as a way to get ahead and change his life. He built an incredible career of influence down under and amazing friendships with renowned chefs such as nose to tail king Fergus Henderson. But throughout it all, at the heart of everything he's done, he's been mindful of finding career paths for disadvantaged and less fortunate members of the community too. And you've uh, built an amazing career in, in Australia and, um, and pork has underpinned a lot of that. But you also got a great relationship with Fergus Henderson, sort of known as the nose to tail um, pork king of the world. How did that relationship begin? Um, it's actually quite a funny one. We, I was working at the point in Albert Park uh, way back in the day, which was probably the first place that I really got my teeth stuck into. And they were wanted to bring Fergus over for the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival back in the day. But all the attempts that they tried to get him over, he wasn't returning their calls, or Trevor, his partner, wasn't returning the calls, you know, because they can be, a, not difficult, but they, you know, when you send a festival person over to do, it's like sending a boy to do a man's job, you know what, I mean? you know what I'm saying? So then um, they kept, they said to me, oh, so I said, I was going to London, and they said, oh, if you're going to London, do you want to go and pop in and see if you can get Fergus to come over? We would love to have him over for um, this the festival and stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's fine. I, and I'd heard of Fergus, and, and I must admit, at that time, because everybody was doing the so-called fine dining and plate, plate, plating up butter roses on the plate and all this sort of stuff, I was like, okay. All right, yeah, I thought, gee, it's a bit simple, this like roast, couple of roasted bones on a plate with a bit of parsley. I was like, okay, yeah, we want to bring him over and all that sort of stuff. So so I did a bit more reading about him and stuff like that, and then myself and Simone, we, we, we were going to London, and we caught the train down from Coventry, and uh, I remember getting into, into London about 11.30, and we got this meeting about quarter past twelve, just to just to say hello and just to you know have a catch up. We had no plans about going there for lunch, and then so I said to I said, "Come on, we'll walk over." So we we walked from the station. As as we're going past, we passed a bottle shop, and Simone said, "Do you want to take something in?" I said, "Ah, uh, oh yeah, yeah, we may as well. Yeah, we'll, we'll take something." So we went into the bottle shop and I thought, "What do you what do you bring?" You know, you, you know, we couldn't bring flowers, and you know. So we we went in and then luckily they had they had a bottle of curly flat on the shelf and also a dead arm Shiraz by Darenberg. And I remember those two particularly because I was like, okay. And it was quite it was I mean, a good bottle shop, but I thought, I remember those and I, and I particularly like curly flat obviously for obvious reasons, but also and the Darenberg and I thought, okay, well that it's a really good label and we'd had it on at the point as well in the uh, thing. So we trot down to, to um to St. John, get there, walk in the first time ever, and then Trevor meets us. He pulls up in his little scooter, takes his helmet off, and uh, 
says, right, so you're over in Australia then? I said, yeah, yeah, we're uh, coming over to try and convince you to come over for the Melbourne Food and Wine F- Festival. So straight into it, like no, no messing around. He says to Simone, who are you? And, you know, so Simone says, rah, rah, rah. And then uh, we give him this little gift, a gift from Australia, rah, rah. And he said, okay. So he opens it up and he just looks at it. He said, I best, better we stay for lunch then. And I said, oh, is it, that, is it that simple? He goes, it's that simple. He said, if you'd have turned up empty-handed, we wouldn't have been having lunch and we, won't, we, we can at least talk about coming to Australia. So then we, so we sat down. Fergus joined us, and because Simone's a doctor and she understands a lot about you know the medical procedures, and Fergus at that stage was still very twitchy, so very very twitchy because of the Parkinson's, but really like you know full on. But even better, he, he was smoking in the restaurant, so <laughs> it was kind of like so we're sitting there in the restaurant, um, his arms twitching everywhere, he's having a cigarette, and then we just sit there and. For the, for the space of about four hours, we just got into it and why you should come over. But more of the fact that Simone knew about Parkinson's and because, you know, the medical stuff. And she would talk to him about so-and-so and the fancy words and stuff because I'm just, I'm basically a stupid chef. But she would talk to him about all the fancy uh, medical terms and all this sort of stuff and the different, you know, uh, implants you can get for it now and all that sort of stuff. And we had a beautiful lunch, just a really, really beautiful lunch, you know. Trevor was very generous. He, like, opened beautiful bottles of wine and champagne, and, and we sat there. And i I never forget that Fer, uh, <laughs> Simone said to Fergus, what should I have in my main course? He goes, well, what, what do you feel like? And, uh, and Simone's like, oh, you choose. So he chose the grouse, right? So the grouse in, in, in England is basically... You, you, you essentially blowtorch it and you serve it. It's not, it's not roasted and stuff like that. And Simone's not a big fan of like pate or, um, or uh, foie gras or anything like that. That's just not her thing. So when the grouse comes out, it's like almost, it's not, it's raw, not raw, but it, it's, it's under, under, you just roast it very, very, very pink. And, uh, and then there's a little crouton on the side and, um, She's just about to eat it, and she says, what's that? And he goes, oh, that's all the hearts and the gizzards all chopped up and then put on there. And she just looks at me, and she goes, you can have that. <laughs> so, so we sat there. And, but to, to, have, to have the bone marrow, and I've had it like another 10 times at that restaurant and all over the, like in different places all over the world, to have the bone marrow in that environment, drinking from those glasses in that room, it's a very special thing. I mean... Signature dishes all over the world are like a, are pretty special, but if you can have the bone marrow at St John and you know, dare I say it, some of the other dishes from all over the world, something that they do really well, incredibly well, it's fantastic, a very special moment. And from there, it's gone from there. Basically, he came over to, um, he came over, him and Trevor came over and did a great uh, couple of things. We did like a New Zealand wine versus Australian wine. We did the festival. It was really, really good, and they and he, he he fronted up every day. He taught the chefs how to drink further Branca properly, and uh, that that means breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and uh, and uh, all that. And then from then on, we've we've been firm friends. I and he's come over to my house where I live in in Melbourne, and uh, Trevor's been over here. We've 
you know, they sell out of my kids. We, whenever we go to London, we catch up and stuff like that. And, uh, and, and whenever I keep a, a close watch on what they're doing, and then if we can't, I'll ring them probably later on this week. So I'm, I'm planning on going on holiday this year to the US. So I'll just reach out and say if they're going to be over there, where they're going to be and when they're going to be, because you never know, you can bump into them. It's the same when I did a thing over in Singapore. They were doing a, a World Gourmet Summit thing over there. And I was doing something over there, so we caught up, and it was funny. We had uh, we did our respective dinners, and we decided, right, come on, we're we're going out for a late supper, and we ended up in this car park about three floors up in this restaurant, a Chinese restaurant in a car park somewhere that Fergus and Trevor had been invited to. Is about nine hundred degrees in this car park, and they brought out this whole pig. And I'm like looking at this thing, and this is about midnight, and it's like really hot and sweaty. There's about 400 people in this restaurant. I'm thinking, where else in the world would you be doing this sort of stuff in Singapore? And you had to go up a lift, down a laneway, and all that. And you go, this is incredible, you know, just beautiful. Beautiful people, really hospitable, you know. I've, and I don't think I've paid whenever I've been there, which has been great. And you know, and we reciprocate whenever he's, he's him and Trevor are here as well. They're beautiful people. You forged an amazing uh, friendship, and you were integral in bringing him over for um, uh, pork dinners, um, where he where he dished up a pig's head uh, salad. I remember. T- tell us tell us about that time and those dinners. <laughs> We'd, he did a thing at Crown Casino. I'll, I'll never forget it. It was like he did this um, <laughs> the half a half a head of uh, half a head of the pig, where it's basically it's submerged. He's got the greens. He's got the stock, and you roast it, and it like the the skin goes crispy as it's roasting, and it's and it, it's a great dish if you like that type of thing, right? But you can imagine Crown Casino, right? Crown Casino. They've invited this guest chef over. And for the for the want of the people that who knew who he was, it was great because we were there and it was fantastic. But for the ones that didn't un- know who he was, and he had Margot helping him, who's his wife, of course. And uh, they did this dish, and you could just see the look on the face when this when this platter of a of a half a pig's head comes out, and people are looking at it. It's got the ears, you know, the eyes, there, the the cheek, and the whole thing. And they've got all the, uh, the the greens around it, and people are just looking at it, going, "What do I do with that?" I mean, <laughs> it was just it was just great to watch. And they had these the, uh, these these celebrity chef dinners and stuff like that. And it, it, it's always quite amusing. That I love the fact that Fergus and Trevor they just do what they do more than anything else. They don't change for anybody. They don't fancy it up. It's like this is what we do. That's what's on the plate. That's that's how it is. And if we don't understand it, or as the punter, they're like, oh well, you don't understand what we're trying to do. And I, and I like that. They don't they don't put flowers on anything. It's like that, that's how it's supposed to be. And also, the you know, the one of the greatest, one of the funniest, and I think the best times ever was we were at the point and we we were trying to explain to Rabbi, who's like now at the botanical over here, we were saying right about the toast, how important it was, the sourdough toast. So Fergus is trying to grill it, and he's explaining to the cooks here, the, the uh, and they they're trying to go through the recipe and he goes, so how do you want this? And he goes, I just want the bed to, bread to be grrr. And they go, what do you mean? They go, grrr, you know, like grrr. And the, and they're like trying, 
how do you translate gruel on a plate? And I'm like, I said, I would imagine it's probably going to be quite crispy. So we spent the next five minutes just trying to like grill this bread so that it's like, and we go for different degrees of, yeah, golden brown. No, that's not quite gruel enough. And then all the way up until like that. And it's like, okay, there's the bread. That's why. And he would explain that it needs to be hard so that the, the bone marrow can sit on there. And, and it's such a well thought out dish, but it looks so simple. But invariably, when you see people who try and copy it and they don't get it right, you go, ah, that's the difference. These are people who don't understand the actual dish, you know. So that's it. The toast being grew supports the bone marrow on the, when you spread the uh, bone marrow on the, on the toast. Then you put your parsley on and the grey salt and you go, okay, I get it now. Perfect. Yeah. You've had an incredible impact on the Melbourne culinary landscape since you've been in Australia, but take us back to when you were young. What, what lured you to a career as a chef? Uh, back in the day when I was, I, was, I was a little bit of a tearaway, a bit of a naughty per, young, young boy, and I just thought, you know, I'm never going to be a master criminal and it's not something I wanted to do. And I thought, you know, I thought if I don't do something, I'm not going to do anything. So it's kind of like I just wanted to, to, to I wanted to get away from my hometown, which is Coventry in the, in the West Midlands in England. And I wanted to go and do something away from there. I just wanted to travel because we come from a, we don't come from the, uh, from a, the richest family and all that sort of stuff. I just wanted to do something other than, other than what I was doing. So I enrolled in a course for that was in the, basically a works canteen at that time. There was a lot of unemployment because it was still Thatcher's Britain. I am because I, I am that old. So then I was um, it was uh, working in this factory canteen, and the guy who was the um, the supervisor there said, "If you want to travel and meet girls, essentially was what I wanted to do." Was uh, he goes go to, go become a cook? He goes because all over the world, it's you can travel all over the world. A tomato in Japan is the same as a, a tomato in in Coventry and stuff like that. And you go oh, okay. So then I went to Catering College. He got me enrolled in Catering College, and from there it's basically never looked back. And you know it's quite funny now that you think. We're all sort of like coming off the back of the uh, COVID and stuff like that, where everybody wanted a bit of a break. And we, a lot of us were sort of like, you know, thinking to ourselves, what's going to happen? But we've all bounced back now. And I must say, I've never had a problem finding work or employment. And, uh, you know, what a great, I mean, you know, I, I think I've had a great career so far. And I'm still going, you know, I'm still busy. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> that's what it is. And I think, you know, for out there, if you could say to any young kid who doesn't know what he's doing, but it's one of those things, you always got to got to eat and you always want to be able to, uh, I mean, I can travel the world. I mean, I've traveled the world quite a few times through cooking and also being able to afford to go on holiday. So not a bad life, really. The nose to tail ethos has really underpinned a lot of your career. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, do you have any stories of the first time that you uh, dissected a whole pig and sort of got to understand sort of whole, whole beast butchery? My thing, my, my first actual, uh, my first actual nose to tail thing that I ever did was when I was at the at the post house in Coventry, they got me to do these hairs because they used to, for some reason, they used to have the, the Trust House 40 hotels, used to have these hair dishes on. I don't know why they had it because maybe the uh, owners loved hair, but around game season, they used to have hairs on and nobody else wanted to skin these hairs. And it's always fascinated me how you, 
you never get to see the whole carcass anywhere of anything, you know, obviously for reasons why they don't want to ever advertise that you to have a look inside an abattoir because that would scare anybody. But also I remember like um, skinning these hairs and it's always fascinating me the actual makeup of like animals and, and the, the, the whole look of what they are when, when they're in their whole form. And the, the, when I first did that, I was like, this is fascinating because, you know, it's, it's a one movement thing. Once you loosen the, uh, the socks, as I call them, it's a one movement thing. And then you open them up and then you go, you get the, the whole jugged hair thing. And also you, you know, the, it's proper cooking when you can actually thicken the sauce with, with the liaison, with the blood and stuff like that. So it was no, it was no surprise that when, when you get to, you get to speak to people like we're saying about Fergus and this whole nose to tell thing of how, how much it's, how good it is when you're doing it, you know, to actually stuff the pig, roast it, carve it and stuff like that. I, I just, I, lo I love that part of it. And, and it's also the sharing between a group of people. Like if you can put down a, you know, a suckling pig in front of somebody and you've shown the care and the love and attention to it, there really isn't much better, you know, even when, uh, you know, even when you're out sharing with people who don't quite get the, the whole feasting thing, it, it's pretty special. You know, and and every time that we've done a, a show with Fergus or a cooking demonstration, we, when we do roast the whole pig and we show the time with the bread and they explain about the, you know, it's yesterday's bread, nothing's wasted. You know, the the wine is what's left over on the shelf. It's no, no specific wine. It's just basically to soak up the juices and for, you know, to mix with the kidneys. So nothing's wasted. It's pretty special, that part of it, yeah. The backbone of your cookery, certainly in the early years, was English and French technique, and pork plays a really big role with that. Do you have any stories of those early years and um, how you came to understand, you know, how to utilise uh, the whole pig and the different elements? My my one of my great memories is of uh, of Jeremy Strode, who used to work for Pierre Kaufman back in the day, and Pierre Kaufman, of course, did the very famous like stuffed pig strudel with morels and a chicken mousse. And at the same time, when Jeremy was over here, Donovan Cook was over here as well, and they'd done the, the stuffed pig's trotter. And both of them at one stage were working with me at um, at the point in Albert Park because it used to be, well, it used to be like a bit of a renegade sort of like in between places you go, right, okay. So Jeremy had, had a finished probably working at Palm or just before Palm or whatever it was, he'd be finished working at Browns or wherever it was. And then in between there, he'd be come to work with us, you know, just little nomad shifts two or three months before they would go to the next thing. And Jeremy would do the uh, the pig strider. And you just used to watch the amount of care and in intricacy of like boning out a pig strider. And it was pretty sp and special. I mean, Jeremy's was always very special. And also, and then you'd have the same effect when you've got Donovan, for example, he would do something his way. And then, you know, and you know, you just watch that, but forever, you know, cooks from Europe, they totally get the whole nose to tell thing itself. It's not, um, you know, again, it's a bit like in Asia, you don't waste anything because of how, how important it is. But especially with pork, you, you get your, if you know what you're doing with it, you can make enough, you can make enough revenue and you can make enough portions out of it and to go, okay, it's got so many different uses and you can actually 
get it back. I mean, everybody loves pork belly. Yeah, yippee-doo, all that sort of stuff. But braising braising a pork neck, for example, or doing a cotoletta, it's, a, it's a exceptional. The cotoletta we used to do at the European, simple coleslaw, but it used to be so popular. And and it's still, as I think it's still on the menu now. But uh, the uh, the thing with it is, it's like just fantastic to... Um, it's just a great product to work with. I mean, everybody knows that. And also, when you got people like Judy Crow and, and some other like amazing um, growers, you go, well, how lucky are we to have this product? Yeah. You, you mentioned Judy Crow. Do, do you have any stories of being on pigs, pig farms and sort of seeing the live land and the connections that you've had there? Uh, well, the only the, one of the good stories I have is when the great Mitch Edwards, who, who is now uh, wearing chiffon and uh, he's got his own scent apparently, first rocked into uh, the point, <laughs> rocked into the point, walks in wearing a leopard skin um, shirt with leopard skin um, uh, luggage, and uh, I'm thinking, I was thinking, I think I'm meeting the guy from the Port Corporation. In comes this guy with the wavy, big blonde wavy hair, with a, like a, a see-through leopard skin top and uh, the and the suitcases. And he walks in. He goes, "Do I look gay?" And I said, "Oh, <laughs> a little bit." And he said, "Okay." So he goes, "Oh, Mitch Edwards from the Port Corporation." I'm like, "Oh, okay." And then I was thinking, "Wow, this couldn't be. This could not be further from somebody who I would have thought." He's we're talking about pigs here, and there, there's Mitch, and you, and you know Mitch, and you go, wow, and from then, and I mean, just as well, because Mitch is always talking about Fergus and Fergus and that and stuff, and he sort of like really introduced me to that, and I think myself, we, I've had a really good relationship with Mitch right through what nearly thirty years now, and he hasn't changed a bit. I mean, in fact, some would say that he's getting more and more. Um, well, he's got his own scent now, haven't they? Him and Mark have got their own scent, and you can burn something in your bathroom, and you go, "Wow, oh, that's fantastic!" You know? But um, yeah, so that's that, and obviously introduced me to Kylie, who's who's basically, you know, Robin to Batman there. So that's fine, and then uh, that was all very good. But then, uh, yeah, they uh, then they said to me, "Oh, we've got to get, introduce you to Judy Crow," and you think, "Gee, a pig farmer." So there's your your perception of what a pig farmer looks like. So, but then, unfortunately, then fortunately, I was going to say, unfortunately, because there, there's the thing that you think in your head, gee, here we go, we're going to meet a pig farmer, and Judy Crow walks in, you go, wow, this is she's special, you know, very lucky, very lucky. Yeah. What's great about yeah. the pigs that she produces? Oh, they're just a care. I mean, the whole thing when you go out there and have a look at the uh, at the uh, the piggery, you know how how they're they're cared looked after the water they've got the actual the chant the fact that they can re free range also the weather out there and you kind of and you think okay there's somebody who actually cares about what they do it's not uh i'm, I'm not going to name other names but other um other pig rays or farms where you've got bigger pigs where they just they're just it's just there as a money-making thing it's not so much about money for um people like judy crow and when i did um and uh, and uh, uh, she doesn't never gets enough credit for this but i did a um an outreach program for some people for um for saint vincent de paul where there were people who were basically homeless or people who work in the uh in there who don't make enough money sometimes homeless can't afford to eat and judy forever donated for i mean I think she still does donates any of her stuff that she has like 
getting close to being, you know, unusable, that she just donates it to them, no questions asked, delivers it, the whole thing. And she's an incredible person for, for doing stuff like that. I mean, it's not a money-making venture, obviously. I mean, I hope she does well, but the reality of it is that people who care enough about other people, you know, you can tell that they'll be good people to their animals as well, you know, and good honour for doing it, you know. Throughout your career, you've um, been involved in all sorts of things that helps misplaced people or disadvantaged people in our society. Well, what sort of impact does getting involved and trying to help people like that have on you? I, I believe that, Tony, you've got your opportunity. F I mean, it's easy to say you want to treat people how you want to be treated, okay? So, you know, you want to do stuff like that. And also... There are good people out there. I mean, I've met some amazing people from television and, you know, some so-called celebrities and stuff like that. But also, the most fun you're ever going to have is, is working with some of your apprentices and, and, and some of the kitchen hands in your, um, in your kitchens because you, you, it's such a diverse cross-section, uh, you know, right the way across, you know, whoever you work with. I mean, you think, 35 years or some, sort of something I've been cooking now, and I've met a lot of kitchen hands and a lot of people that you would not want to meet in a dark alley, but also you'd also think to yourself, these are people that would do anything for you. And you got different stories from different people all over the world. Like, you know, I, I, you know, the, I, I lose count of the amount of people who are very, very highly educated who are washing dishes in restaurants. And also the fact that you think because they didn't get an opportunity. And it kind of makes you realise we're cooks. Myself and everybody else who I know who wears the white jacket, we're just cooks. There are people out there who are washing dishes to feed their family and to look after their family are very highly educated, studied at university, don't get the opportunity. And, you know, in places like Australia, where they don't get to, you know, they're driving Ubers or, you know, they're educated in, in the Middle Eastern countries, but they don't get the opportunities here. And also you look at it from the other side of people that fall through the cracks, like people who are drug affected or, you know, or criminals and stuff like that. They make a mistake, you know. I doubt if any if anybody out there listening doesn't know somebody who's been in trouble with the police, and they're not bad. Not all bad people. Yeah, of course you're going to have some dickheads, but the reality of it is that whenever the ones anybody that I've spoken to from prison when I've done my prison outreach stuff, you know, they're generally good people. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of it's drug related, but also some of the stories, and you kind of go, you know, and it's it's. You know, it's it's heartening, and it also makes you, you know, retrospectively look at yourself and go, well, okay, maybe I'm not as great as I think I am. And also, we need to actually look at it from a we just we're just here for a short time. Just enjoy yourself. Just help uh, try and help other people out where you can. I'm not saying to like give away or you know, join the what do you call it the uh, Bill Gates thing and give away all your wealth. But I'm saying, you know, you don't have to be a dickhead forever. <laughs> mentoring is a big part of what you do as well, obviously with the different restaurants and different roles that you have. The opportunities for young chefs these days are different to what you experienced a few decades ago, but what sort of advice do you have for young people coming into the industry and the opportunities in front of them? I, and everybody from my age gap or even five years later will tell you that when we were working in London for our first time, of course you get the horror stories like, 
the 18-hour shifts and that. I generally tell you right now, hand on heart, we could not afford to eat when we were in London. So when I was starting as an apprentice, you, you got to work, you got to work early. If you could, if you could eat something in the canteen, well, the staff canteen before you did your start your shift, you did that because you couldn't afford to eat if you were off the night before. And then you worked and then you, you had something to eat in the staff canteen. And if you were very lucky and you were on, off that night, you'd get to eat something heavier because you knew you weren't going to afford to eat. Nowadays, you know, your young kids today, they've all got the latest phone. They've all uh, on Instagram looking at themselves with their Japanese knives and they still drive a car and... And, and, you know, the industry has come on leaps and bounds. Like the young kids today, they're getting paid pretty good money to be taught, you know, for what it is. Now, this is I'm talking about there, the apprentices and the chef to parties. The sous chefs and the chefs, you know, they come through and they're getting to be, they're in demand and stuff like that. But the, the reality of it is it, it is a great career if you can if you can pursue it. But just don't go too hard too early. Everybody will turn around and say, oh, this guy's a, he wants the sous chef job. But he, he can't run a kitchen. He doesn't know how to like, talk to staff. He doesn't know how to motivate staff and bring staff through. And also ask him to change a menu or design a menu and cost it effectively. Now, that's not going to happen because he's just, he just finished getting the sleeve of tattoos or whatever it is, I don't know, whatever it is they do, the, the young kids today. But anyway, my, my thing is, Myself and I know st- old stages like Guy Grossi and uh, Frank, because we're doing a dinner together. We do a lot of these events at William Anglis College or Holmes Glen or or the VU Uni or uh, you know Box Hill Tay, for example, knowing that we might be able to snag a good apprentice or somebody good because you can look at them in that environment and go, okay, and then you say you're looking for a job because now you know it's like we we need staff to actually do the job. I, I've got a I've got a pub in, in uh, Melbourne that's only just reopened after 18 months of being closed. So I haven't got staff to, to man it. A little earlier, we were talking a bit about pork and you mentioned uh, uh, a couple of dishes that you used to have on the menu. Is there, are there any sort of particular cuts that you prefer that you could tell us about in the way that you like to cook them? Uh, I, see, I love it. I love it all. But I, I, <laughs> I remember... I remember Fergus sitting down and he was doing a postcards, um, <laughs> a postcards uh, TV show, and they they've come to get the sent the presenter in. At the time was Dermot Brereton, right? So Dermot Brereton, the uh, great footy player, or what he was, you know, he comes in and he's doing postcards, you know, man about town, and all this sort of stuff. And then Fergus is sitting there, and they said, "Oh, can you can you do a dish for a?" Uh, for Dermy to talk about. So he goes, yeah, of course. So he does his, uh, the fried pig's tails, right? So he's done the fried pig's tails, braised them off, covered them in mustard, breadcrumbed them, you know, deep, deep fried them. Dermy was uh, braised uh, having these pig's tails. I was like, the look on his face as if to say, I don't know if I can eat a pig's tail. And as he's chewing through the cartilage, he's going, different i don't know if we would do it at the footy but uh yeah so that was that so it, it was beautiful mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you mentioned the cotoletta a bit earlier as well which was a, a signature of yours can you take us through that how do you make a great one well well for me the cotoletta that we used to do at, at the european and we still do like something similar at kirk's we we get the uh judy crow's uh, western plains pork and we uh we basically bat it out. We use the 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 fat part of it, 
and uh, we use that for something else. And uh, we uh, just pan, pan fry it with uh, with in the, with the breadcrumbs, but we we pané it to order. We don't we don't ever ever pané it before service and stuff like that. So you order it, gets panéed there and then, passed through the breadcrumbs and the the lemon zest and 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 the uh, and the herbs because they're yesterday's product. So whenever we've worked in, at the European, for example. All the herbs, all the uh, the grated lemon zest or anything else goes into the breadcrumb mix for that particular day from yesterday. So you don't waste anything. Pass it through. So that way the herbs are still green, but they're not good enough to use as a fresh herb dish. And then we used to do an Italian coleslaw, which was similar to Caram Martini's back in the day. And we used to use, you know, whatever was we thought was appropriate. So you do a coleslaw with fennel, um, you know, fennel, bit, bit of, we actually put peas in it at one stage, cabbage and stuff like that, and it's just beautiful. Serve it with a really good mustard and uh, and, and a grilled lemon. And honestly, it's a beautiful, beautiful dish. And, you know, and cooking, doing the breadcrumbs at the last minute keeps it keeps it moist, and it's fantastic. And wherever I've gone, I've always put that on, and that's my, that's my even the vegetarians love it. So it's, it's, uh, it's really good. The the COVID sort of time walk altered lots of things in the industry and for most people on the planet. But what what are you doing these days as we sort of push through COVID and beyond? See, from see, what I wanted to do was uh, the first three months of it was like, oh, this will be a bit of a break, and you can catch up yourself and spend time with the kids, and you can you can sort of like think to yourself, okay, well, I've always wanted to do those jobs around the house that I thought I was going to do because everybody was locked down. Of course, Victoria had it worse than anybody. But then after about the third or fourth, you kind of think, are we going to really bounce back? Could this be with us forever and stuff like that? So. I got to, I, I did get to be worried that the restaurants weren't going to bounce back. So I've now got to the stage where I pretty much say yes to anything. So I'm doing I'm doing I'm doing way too much at the moment that I, that I shouldn't be. But also I'm working a lot with Ovalo Hotels. I'm, I look after their kitchens nat- nationally. So we've got four vegetarian or vegan hotels, and uh, we've got three hotels that are not vegan or vegetarian. They they do. I'd hate to say the word normal food, but it's like they do everyday food, like, you know, between the three hotels. And the hotel group's expanding. And they've, they've been incredibly good to me. Like, I've worked with them for the last five years, and, that, and they've, they've put up with some of my nonsense as well. So and, and I'm very lucky there. I'm opening a, a tea house, like an English tea house type setup in, in Melbourne later on this year. And, uh, yeah, I know over three levels at this... Heritage listed building, which is going to be fantastic, and I'm really looking forward to that because it's it's something so far removed from what from what it, anything else I've done before. And um, for the next for the next three months, I'm doing um, the Rockstar shifts out at Caulfield Race Course because they're now the stadiums are realised that they've got so many people and food and food and beverage is such a such a large offering, whereas it used to be a, a pie and a and a pie and a pot. Now it's like you know, it's such a big deal. And I know in Sydney, of course, with the Maryvale Group taking on some of the stadiums, where um, Caulfield are like trying to step up and do a lot better food. And they've, I'm doing like the menus there for the next three or four months. And then between my other restaurants and everything else that's going on, yeah, I'm ticking along. But I thought because everything was like, because we went from zero 
to about a thousand very quickly and you kind of just say to yourself okay yeah i'm gonna do it you know doing it i'm loving it yeah loving every minute of it at the moment well i know that there's so much more we could talk about and um <laughs> but <laughs> perhaps we'll have to catch up down the track and um, look forward to seeing all these things uh come to fruition uh and it's been an absolute honor to have you on the crackling today uh please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon i will beautiful see you hucks this is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.